We've been in a series in the book of Exodus. Over the last four weeks, we've been looking at the book of Exodus and kind of seeing some of the things that we can draw out of it. And um, I think at week four, it starts to get a little bit exciting, I think. I'm week four. Things start to liven up in the story a little bit. Moses has already had this kind of mini exodus where he got chased out of Egypt. He has his encounter with a bush on fire and then he kind of is a man with a mission. He comes back. Him and Pharaoh start having these interactions and we find ourselves in the story. I don't know if you know the story of Moses and the exodus and the Passover story, but sometimes when we know a story really well, it can become, I say, dangerously familiar. Like, too familiar. It reminds me, in fact, of driving a car. I don't know if you drive a car or when you learn to drive a car. For me, it wasn't that long ago. And um, when you're learning to drive, right, you are double concentrating. You're thinking you've got your hands at your 10 to 2. You're checking your mirrors about every three seconds. What's going on? You're thinking about what your foot's doing on the clutch when you've got to change gear. You're, some people, I know, they can't even have music on because they've like, got to concentrate. They're turning music off. People trying, or you, maybe you're trying to sort the kids out in the back or something like that. But you're concentrating 100%. Then within a few weeks, maybe months, or maybe you're more sensible than I am, but within a few weeks or months, you've got, let me put this up here, you've got one, uh, one hand in the glove box, one hand you've got a bit of food in, you're doing a bit of steering with your elbow, you're kind of putting your hand behind, trying to grab something on the back seat. You're kind of all, you are not concentrating. And in fact, it, you're dangerously familiar with your car and with driving. And you kind of see people, you know, I've, I've pulled up before next to someone, he's got a bowl of cereal in his hand, eating his breakfast, you know, he's late to work maybe, he's, but, and you sort of think, well, fair enough, it's a good idea. You know, we become so familiar. And I always think, let us not be a people that become so familiar with these Bible stories that we stop allowing God to speak to us in fresh ways. Think, oh yeah, I've heard that story. Oh yeah, I know that story. No, every time we come and read a story from the Bible, let us be people that are prepared to see things differently, for God to speak to us in a fresh way. If we believe that the word is alive and active, it means it speaks to us in different ways. And so as we read what is a familiar story, let us come with that in our mind. Um, I, I always find this story funny. Moses has, there's been nine plagues we've had so far and 11 warnings to Pharaoh. And we find ourselves in a familiar setting. And sometimes I read these stories and I wonder weird things. Like I wonder, how, was, how did Pharaoh feel? Or what's he thinking when he sees Moses coming up those palace steps again? Thinking, oh, here we go again. You know, he's already been up there nine times. The thing that it reminded me of, of how he felt is how I feel when I'm sitting in, in the living room and you see a door-to-door knocker coming down the pathway. And you think, oh, no. Am I going to get rid of these? Or maybe you see a Jehovah Witness come down and you think, oh, no. What I usually do is I try and talk to them for about half an hour, 40 minutes, because I think the longer they're with me, the less time they're with the next-door neighbor. And I, I try and sort of talk them around and, they, you know, let's get, let's get deep. You know, do you want to come in? We'll get the Bible open. And, and we go, you know, we go. But that's kind of how I imagine Pharaoh felt. You think, can I try and get rid of them? I don't know how you are. I'm quite cutthroat. I'm glad to say, listen, sorry, not today. My wife is too nice, and she has to entertain them, and she chats for 10 minutes. But she still tells them no at the end. So I'm just telling you, you just wasted 10 minutes of their time, but you was nice about it. Um, but I wonder how Pharaoh feels when he's coming up the palace steps. Is, is, is he scared? Is he thinking, another plague, what am I going to do? Is he thinking, oh, you know, I'm going to banish him out? I wonder. We're going to read the story in Exodus 11. It's quite a lot of reading, so bear with me. I'll try my best. Um, 
I'm going to read all of Exodus 11, and I'm going to read most of 12, but I'm going to skip some parts that are relevant to the story. So you're probably best off following it on the screen behind, because it might jump a bit in your Bible. So we're going to start at Exodus 11. Now the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbours for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favourably disposed towards the people, and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die, from the firstborn of son of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, to the firstborn son of the female slave, who's at her handmill, and all the firstborn of all the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me, saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I'll leave. Then Moses, would, uh, then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron, they performed all wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of the year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household's too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbour, having taken into account the number of people there are. You're to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose from must be year-old males without defect. And you may take them from either the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel will slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the doorframe of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. This is how you are to eat it. With your, clo- with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. And here he explains what's going to actually happen. On the same night, I'm going to pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I'll bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you in the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread. Remember that. Because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord, who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt. And the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, 
to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was a loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for the opportunity that we have to come and study your word. Or let us not become too familiar. Let us not just be run of the mill with these passages and think, oh, this is a kid's story that we once knew. But Lord, we believe that your word is alive and active. And so we pray, will you speak to us powerfully through it? We open our eyes to see things again, God, as we look to continually just glorify and live for you. We pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Uh, Today I want to look at three different things that the Passover means. Three different angles, if you like, or three different lenses of the Passover. The Passover is simply that, that God is going to pass through killing all the firstborn, but if blood is above your doorpost, then you will be spared. I think there's three things that we can learn. What is the Passover? I think there's three things we can learn from what it actually is to us. And the first of those three things for me is it is a victory. The Passover is a victory. It starts off in the chapter. And the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. And after that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he'll drive you out completely. There has been this ongoing battle between Pharaoh and Moses. They've been kind of going at it and back and forth. And this, uh, Pharaoh refuses to kind of give ground. But what we're going to see happen is one set of people are going to be liberated, set free, and the other are going to be punished. You're going to see victory for Moses and Israel and punishment for Pharaoh and Egypt. The Passover, it has to include a level of judgment for Pharaoh. And in the story, Pharaoh, he represents all of Egypt. They are all behind him, if you like. So he's their representative. And so each plague that, they, that happens to Pharaoh is happening to all of Egypt. And they know that, but in this one, the people of Egypt are going to feel it the most. The Passover, it has to involve a level of judgment. Every plague, I like to think, is like a blow in the face of Pharaoh. Every plague is like this kind of hitting him back, but he keeps coming forward for more. He keeps going, no, I will not retreat. And so God... Each one shows the power of God. God, in this next one, is going to show his power to Pharaoh. And it's like the sovereign hand of God. What I mean by that is Pharaoh would not retreat. Pharaoh, God knew his heart would be hardened. God knew that that would happen. It was his sovereign hand knowing that he would have to bring this final plague that would be a Passover. So we would be introduced to this thing. If Pharaoh had set off the first plague, oh, they can go. And we never would have had the Passover. We wouldn't know what Passover is. What makes me laugh is that by refusing to let the people go, is what Pharaoh did, he was actually helping fulfill God's salvation plan for all of humanity. And I'll see how that comes later on. In this one moment, right, God is trying to show his power to all nations and to all people. I don't know if you know the story, but there's these magicians in the story, and they can do a few things. So some of the first plagues they do, the magicians are like, well, we can do that. There's a few things that these Egyptians kind of people that do. But with this one, God is showing his complete power, knowing that he is the only one who holds the power of life and death in his hands. 
He's the only one who holds the keys. Only he can do that. So he didn't do this just to set the people free. He could have done that in another way. He'd done it also to show his power. To show that he alone will have a total victory. That victory belongs to God. If you like, to show that he is the creator and we are the created. And he is the one who is all powerful. And so for these people, freedom from slavery comes when they submit to the power of God. And in the same way for us, when we acknowledge the all-powerful God, that's when freedom comes. Last week, our senior pastor, Steve Tibbetts, spoke about there's things that we are bound by, enslaved by. There's things that kind of have us. It is only when we submit to the power of God will we see victory in those things. Only when we acknowledge who God is, that he is the one who can set us free from the bondage of sin. In the same way that he was the only one who could liberate and set free the people of Israel by showing his power with a Passover. And so our salvation is in his hands. Israel's salvation was in his hands and God had to bring a complete victory. And so the first thing that the Passover is, is God's victory. The second thing I think it is, is it is a gift. The Passover is a gift to an undeserving people. I don't know about you, but I love a, I love a good versus evil film. I think we all do. Uh, you know, we like the goodies and the baddies. You've got the good people. We like to be on their side. We like what they stand for. You've got the baddies. They're evil. We don't like them. And we like having these clear distinctions, don't we? We like to know whose side we're on. Uh, this is not a new thing. A pair of German brothers in the 19th century called Brothers Grimm, they wrote many of the famous fairy tales that you know today. Hansel and Gretel, uh, Cinderella, Little Red Riding Hood, Rapunzel, loads of them. Snow White. And they decided that they knew that people liked these distinctions. And so they decided to put char- uh, characters into categories, kind of good and bad. So when you read these stories, it's always very clear to see who's kind of the hero and the good people, who the bad people are. And it's a popular tool for storytelling. In fact, Disney do the same thing. Nearly every Disney film you've seen, you've got the good people and the bad people, the hero and and the villain. And we know who we want to side with. And any popular film franchise, really, they do this. James Bond, they do the same thing. You've kind of got the good and the bad. Star Wars do the same. It, It is a very popular tool that a lot of storytellers use because the human brain seems to like these clear distinctions. We know whose side we've got to be on. So none of us side with Thanos or Scar or Darth Vader or the Wolf or the evil stepsisters or Doctor No. We don't side with those people. We side with the Avengers, with Cinderella, with James Bond, with Simba, with Luke Skywalker. At least I hope you do. If you don't, I've got some questions. There's always a few weird people out there. No, I really like Scar. Why? (laughs) But we like to side with the good people. We like these distinctions, don't we? It's very true. And a lot of it is rooted more in the moral message. It's like the evil man, he's trying to destroy the world or do something. And we're like, no, we don't like the morality of that message. We like the good guy because he stands for good principles and good values and good morals. And sometimes we don't even care what the good guy does. And my favorite example of this is the story Jack and the Beanstalk. Anyone know the story Jack and the Beanstalk? If you don't, the story Jack and the Beanstalk is about a poor giant minding his own business who is the victim of burglary. He gets his money stolen, his eggs stolen, his heart stolen. Then when he's trying to get it back, he's the victim of manslaughter because he's killed. And this guy Jack gets away with all of it. It's a disgrace. He should do life. 
But we don't read it that way. We read it as this great guy, Jack and the Beanstalk, goes up into the sky and he does all these things and this giant is evil because we're in the categories we're supposed to hate the giant and we're supposed to like Jack. And so we kind of love these distinctions. Sometimes we even forget what's really going on. I don't know if you've seen the film Prince of Egypt about the story of Exodus, but it very much tries to make it the same way. And sometimes we read this story like it's a good v. evil story. Sometimes we try to read it as you've got the Egyptians, the evil tyrant Pharaoh, they're the bad guys, and then you've got Israel and Moses, and they're the good guys. And so we clearly know, well, we're on the side of Israel. But actually, the story is not a good versus evil story like that. It really isn't. There is a clear distinction in the story. In fact, if you were listening to me reading about 30 pages, then you would have heard that one of the verses says this. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. There will be loud wailing through Egypt, worse than there's ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. There is a distinction. But this distinction that is made is not good versus evil. He doesn't make the distinction because of Israel's morals. In fact, Jesus says in John 14, 6, it's only God, only the Father is good. The, the good the evil story is God is good and all of humanity are evil. That is the good the evil story. In fact, it is only by God's grace, it is a gift, the Passover, by his grace to these people. That is why they're being saved. Israel, they needed to know who God was. They weren't good people. If you've ever looked at the story of Israel, they themselves, they were lost in worshipping idols. Egypt was a very polytheistic society. That just means there's loads of different gods. And the, the Israelites, they were going and worshipping Egyptian gods. They were bowing down to their idols. They were disobeying God's commands. They were doing all sorts. They weren't good people. Their morals weren't all clear and straight. That's not why God comes for them. Their morals were all over the place. They Actually, they too should have suffered the judgment of God. They too should have suffered it. They too should have perished. But the Passover reveals God's extravagant mercy to them. It reveals his grace that he alone is good. Had they not been covered by the blood, if they were not covered by the blood, had they not taken the blood of the lamb and covered their doorposts, then they too would have suffered. It is only by the blood that God was happy to pass over them. You know what? In that moment, they knew their only hope. Their only hope was God and his gift of the Passover to them. Can you imagine how they felt in that moment? They were desperate for his provision. They would have been desperate to just know we need to know God's provision. I wonder how familiar you've got with God's provision for you. I wonder if your stance, if you are desperate for God's provision for you again, because we should be. We should be reminded that we are not good. It is not a good v. evil story. It actually is God who is good, who provides for us. And so they're not saved because of their racial or social superiority. That's not why they're saved. Their salvation is actually tied up in God's promise to Abraham that they would be his chosen people by his grace. 
Superiority can't save us from God's grace. We can't be saved in that way. You know, us too cannot be saved. Sometimes, you know what we like to do? We like to dehumanize everyone else and point the finger at everyone else. We like to other people. You see it in the headlines. They put titles of certain types of people that are out there. And we like to look at them and go, they're definitely worse than we are. Oh, he's no good. Oh, that person's wrong and he's no good. I would, I'm, not, I'm better than he is. That's what we like to do. We like to point the finger. So we think we ourselves are, we are saved because we are good people. Oh, my, my morality is good. The virtues that I've got are good. The values I stand for are good. That's what we try to do. The Bible's clear that we are not saved because we are good. The people of Israel were not saved because they were good people. It is a gift of grace to an undeserving people because we all deserve judgment. Like in this story, it is grace alone. A choice that God made in his mercy that he would pass over. And we'll see that that gift of grace wasn't just for the people of Israel, but it's a gift that extends to us now. And we'll see that in the story. So we've got the Passover is a victory. We've got the Passover is a gift. The last thing that the Passover is, there's lots of talk in this passage about, I want you to remember. The Passover is a remembrance. I don't know what you... Think of when you think of remembrance. I often think of Remembrance Sunday or Armistice Day. We set aside one day a year that we know in November where we come to remember people that have fought in wars and conflicts and died across the world, but particularly in World War I and World War II. And we come on that day and we wear poppies and we make an effort to remember them. Because that is the right thing. Remembering, we know it is important to remember. We don't want to be a forgetful people. And often... On that day, in fact, this is what God says. He says, this is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. He commands them, you are to remember doing this. The phrase, I don't know if you know the phrase, lest we forget. We often use that on Remembrance Sunday. That's actually taken from a poem uh, written by a Christian bloke called Rudar Kipling. And he, in the first stanza, he writes this kind of, um, he writes his first stanza. He says, God of our fathers, known of old, Lord of our far-flung battle line, beneath whose awful hand we hold dominion over palm and pine. Lord God of hosts, be with us yet, lest we forget, lest we forget. Can you imagine if we forgot the provision and the sacrifice of those who died in war? Can you imagine if we, for, if we just forgot and we don't want to be a forgetful people. In fact, we take it very seriously in this country, as we should do. Well, when I was a teacher in a school, we would host assemblies where you sit all the kids down and you talk to them about remembrance and you teach it in school so that it is passed down through generations. So that if one generation dies off, it's not just forgotten. We pass things down through generations. God is saying, no, this is to be passed down in generations. Can you imagine if Israel had forgotten God's provision for them? Can you imagine? Well, at times they did. They did. They went off and they did other things. And, but God is saying, no, this isn't just for you and your people now. This is for generations to come. Do not forget what I have done for you. Because when you forget, you go off doing other things. I don't know, maybe you have at times, you have forgotten what God has done for you. Maybe like the Israelites, we have a tendency to forget, to stray off. God saying, no, come back, remember what I've done. Remember my grace and my mercy for you. Ronald Reagan, who was a former American president, said, um, he says this in a famous quote, Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. 
Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. Things can die out in a generation, they say. Long-held values, principles, things you do. So the principle is it's important to teach through generations. This was something that God wanted them to remember beyond. He wanted his redemption for them to be like etched into their identity. There'll be a day every year, even if you've been living in any sort of way, there's going to be a day, the day of unleavened bread, where you'll come and you will remember the Passover. And when you do that, you'll remember what I've done for you. That he alone is their redeemer. That he alone is their saviour. That he alone is their God. That he was the God who remembered them. In the start of Exodus, it talks about he was the God who remembers them. He was the God who remembered you in your pain, in your suffering, in your, uh, in your mess, in when you were lost, in your bondage, in your slavery. He remembered you. He remembered, he acted, he redeemed. In the same way he did for them. And so we remember. Let us not forget the act of remembering. Those three things. I think the Passover clearly says a victory is a gift and a remembrance. But if you are familiar with the Bible, you'll know that this story is not a standalone story. In fact, it points to something else. Sometimes this points to that. It's like a shadowing. A thousand years later, Jesus will turn up on the scene, known as the greater Moses, we call him. And the similarities, this time it's not Pharaoh as the slave master. No, it is sin. And the devil was the slave master. And Jesus Christ, God, spotless, blameless, without defect, is the Lamb of God. In the same way, I love the story, because in the same way, you know Pharaoh, I said, he didn't realize, right, that he was helping fulfill God's salvation plan. He didn't know he was doing that by refusing to let people go. In the same way that Herod and Pilate and Judas and the Romans, they didn't realize that by killing Jesus, they they weren't doing something good. They were helping fulfill God's salvation plan for all of humanity. They had no idea that that's what they were doing. Because on the cross, we know that Jesus delivers the ultimate victory. That he crushes the head of Satan. He defeats the power of sin when he boldly rises again from the grave. A victory like no other. So we see again this victory. And again, like the Passover, it is a gift of grace to us now. Our social status doesn't save us. Our good works don't save us. Our morality doesn't save us. We too, you and I, deserve judgment. We too deserve the punishment for sin, which is death. But God pours it out on his own son. You know, Israel were given a choice. You either, the firstborn son will die, or you can take a lamb and sacrifice it and put it over. They're given a choice. But God, in one, provides us with the lamb of God and in doing so, sacrifices his own son. In one, Jesus Christ is the Son and the Lamb in one person. And so it is by the blood of the Lamb that we are saved. It is by Jesus' blood that we will be passed over. The Israelites, they had to cover their wooden posts with blood. Jesus covered his own cross with his blood. And by that we are saved. 
we are passed over despite our mess. Like the Israelites, they had a lot going on. They were doing things that weren't worthy of God. They had a load of mess going on. Despite our mess, despite the things that we bring, despite the mistakes that we make, despite the things that we do that we know are not living for God's way, despite all that stuff, he says, no, you will be passed over. Why? Because of my grace and love for you. That's the truth that we hold on to and so we remember. We come again this morning and we remember because he has remembered us. And so in a moment, as kind of we come towards the end of our service, we will break bread together. We will have a commun we'll take communion with one another in sharing that meal. A meal that actually Jesus ate with his disciples. We know. And he said, What does he say? Do this in remembrance of me. Every time you have this meal, you're going to do it in remembrance of me. And so he instructed them, in fact. It says in Luke's account that they were gathered on the day of unleavened bread. It is the day of unleavened bread that we knew was when they would prepare and kill the sacrifice of the lamb. That's what they remembered. So for years, the people of Israel would take the lamb and they would kill it on the day of unleavened bread to prepare their Passover. And so Jesus, knowing that he himself would be killed and that he himself would be sacrificed as an ultimate sacrifice, he says, we're going to do this on this day. We're going to take communion with one another. Knowing that he was going to be the Passover lamb, the one who freed us from slavery, from freed us from sin. So he takes the bread and he says, as he would have done, this is my body. And he would have broken it as his body would be broken. He said, do this in remembrance of me. When we come together and eat the bread, we're not just doing something because that's what we do on Sundays. We're breaking the bread, remembering that his body was broken for us as the Passover lamb. And then he would have taken the cup of wine. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for you. In the same way it was poured over the gatepost, the doorpost. He said, my blood will be poured out on the cross for you. And because of the blood, you will be passed over. It is only by the blood of our great Passover lamb, King Jesus, that we are saved and that we can know God Lest we forget, I'm going to invite the band to come up and let's pray together. Why don't we stand? I'm going to pray. We're going to sing a song that kind of just focuses on the Lamb of God again for us. It would help just fix your gaze on that. And after we do that, we're going to come and we're going to take communion with one another. And we're going to share in the Lord's meal. And so I'm going to pray and we'll do that. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for Jesus Christ, the Passover lamb. God, we pray, we repent where we have been flippant, when we've forgotten, when we've wandered off, where we've become familiar. God, the great cost that you paid. We're so grateful that it's not our good works or our acts or the things that we do, Lord, that save us, but it is only a gift of your mercy to us. And so we pray as we come now and we sing this song, help us to be reminded of all that you've done. Help our gaze be fixed back on you as we worship you for what you've done, King Jesus. We pray in your mighty name. Amen. Amen. Amen.